Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 993. Coming to you a bit early this week, David Lorela kicks things off by welcoming A.J. Hinch, former Major League catcher and current manager of the Detroit Tigers. David begins by comparing Hinch to Rogers Hornsby, who he recently passed on the all-time managerial wins list and is happy to be in the same sentence with. We also hear about the ins and outs of working on player development with the likes of Tigers pitching coach Chris Fetter and Vice President Ryan Garko, and the players they have been seeing strides from in Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, Alex Fiedo, Bo Brisky, Joey Wentz, Matt Manning, and more. Hinch also shares his thoughts on things like how important it is for pitchers to get strikeouts, the fences coming in at Comerica and elsewhere, bench coach George Lombard having a future in managing, and how he feels about the fielding shift changes for next year. And finally, while this segment was recorded just before the Tigers announced the hiring of new president of baseball operations Scott Harris, Hinch offered his insight into the position search and how he sees himself sticking with his managerial role. You know, for me, my passion is on the field. It's it's with the players. It's it's being kind of front and center in the in the day to day win loss grind and implementing the vision of the organization on the field. the The front office job would always appeal to anybody that that loves the sport. And I've always said the sport will kind of lead you where you're supposed to be if it. It's in a front office, you're in a front office. If it's on the field, it's on the field. But I, I didn't want that to, to be bantered about in the conversation because I, you know, I really, I really love what I do and where I'm at and, and the responsibilities that I, that I have as the manager. So after that, Ben Clemens and Dan Zimborski get together for their latest baseball banter, headlined by Aaron Judge chasing not only home run records, but also potentially the Triple Crown. The duo talk about how remarkable the Bronx Bombers campaign has been and how nobody else is even comparing with the bat. Ben and Dan recorded this segment on Tuesday, after the Tigers' announcement of their new president, so they also share their thoughts on Detroit's rebuild and how the club still offers a lot of intrigue and high variability after a disappointing 2022. We also hear about the St. Louis Cardinals, who have a pair of National League MVP candidates and are wrapping another dependably strong season, just not in the way we are used to. And Ben thinks if you somehow don't have a favorite baseball team, now is a good time to join the Cardinals bandwagon. Yeah, I'm not really crowing about the Cardinals because should you be that surprised that they're going to pass 90 wins? Like, no, like maybe it's 88 sometimes, but they're pretty good. They're usually pretty good. It's a great team to root for. If you have somehow stumbled upon this podcast and have no baseball allegiances, I think you should root for the Cardinals because it's pretty fun. They're never bad. And you always get meaningful games in September. I like it. And this year feels about the same. I have really enjoyed the Pujols chase. I think that would be fun, even if the Cardinals were terrible this year. Yeah, he, he's been pretty respectable. He's been crazy. Now, to refer to what you said a minute ago, if you are listening and you're not a baseball fan or have a baseball team and you're on this podcast, please tell us how you got here, because I have no idea. That might be interesting information. Finally, Dan struggles with rolling his R's and gets himself in trouble when trying and failing to order snacks and the appropriate amounts. I've been thinking about pork rinds because I ordered some pork rinds from Amazon. Uh, and for some reason, I thought that 32 ounces was fluid ounces because, you know, pork rinds are a fluid. Uh, but oh apparently God. it was two pounds of pork rinds. That sounds like and a lot. It, it is. A, so I had this giant like jug of pork rinds and apparently they all expire in December. So I need to eat like 75 pork rinds a day to eat them before they spoil. So that's not going to happen. And I don't think, you know, a, a, a food kitchen is going to want a half filled jug pork of rinds. pork rinds. So I'm 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 going to live on pork rinds for a week. That, that's that's my life now. See if you can use them as like a topping on some other food. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Good. Do the chopped route. Here's my. I'm serving my chicharron encrusted orange roughy. 
But before we get to these wonderful segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the best place for you to get your Fangraphs merch and swag, but you can scoop up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is absolutely the best way to both browse the site and to support the site, helping us in doing everything we do. There's no doubt we couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is AJ Hinch, manager of the Detroit Tigers. AJ, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. I should start first by saying we're speaking on Friday, September 16th. We're recording a little earlier than normal. And as of today, the 16th, I happen to notice that the Detroit Tigers franchise record is 9,500 wins and 9,400 losses which I think is is pretty cool. But I also noticed, you know, somewhat related that, AJ, you just recently moved into the top 100 for all-time managerial wins. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. I didn't know that. You and the immortal Rogers Hornsby. I don't know if he was a better manager than you. I think it's safe to say he was a better hitter than you. (laughs) Yeah, check the numbers. That'll tell you exactly what the difference between us were. Yeah, you you and Rogers Hornsby are tied for 98th place now with 701 wins. So, can we just can we agree that if I get to 702, can I take the managerial side of the comparison and I'll just grant him the hitting side already? I think that sounds fair. Okay, good. That sounds very fair. But the number of wins that you will amass in your managerial career, AJ, is, of course, a subject that we should broach because, as I'm sure you saw a few days after Al Avila was let go as GM in early August, I wrote that the next Tigers GM might be sitting in the dugout. You subsequently, after Al's dismissal said, you know, know that you're the manager, you're not interested in that position. Has that changed in any way? No, it hasn't really changed. I mean, I, I first off, I appreciate you even thinking of me in that regard. My, my history throughout front offices and back and forth into the manager's chair a couple times, and I've always been intellectually curious about the different jobs and, you know, never close any doors. And I think that that might confuse a lot of different people on what path to go on. But I'm, you know, for me, my passion is on the field. It's, it's with the players. It's, it's being kind of front and center in the, in the day-to-day win-loss grind and implementing the vision of the organization on the field. The, the front office job would always appeal to anybody that, that loves the sport. And I've always said the sport will kind of lead you where you're supposed to be. If it, it's in a front office, you're in a front office. If it's on the field, it's on the field. But I, I didn't want that to, to be bantered about in the conversation because I, you know, I really, I really love what I do and where I'm at and, and the responsibilities that I, that I have as the manager. So thank you for, for thinking of me that way. But I'm, my full focus is on, you know, finding the partner and, and trying to get the Tigers back to their winning ways on the field. And I do want to talk, AJ, a little more about your background and not in specifics with the GM search. I'm sure that's a subject that you really can't address. But I did not write in the early August article, but really should have, was that if you were to get kicked upstairs, that George Lombard would probably be the best managerial candidate, be it in Detroit or elsewhere. Why would George be a good big league manager? 
Yeah, George is good. And and I've been, you know, very fortunate to have a number of guys on staffs that have gone on to to good jobs. And, you know, I take pride in developing people and and giving responsibility to people. When when I got this job, George was a natural choice to come be the bench coach as a tireless worker, a fundamentalist in nature, a communicator. You know, he had been with the Dodgers, which is always a great draw when you're looking for for high end talent, both on the field and in the in the in the front office. They are so good at 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 exposing their their employees to to higher end learning. And so when I got George over here, the only thing he hadn't done in the game was really be close to the decision making. He he'd been at first base, he'd been in a World Series, he'd been under Dave Roberts in the dugout. But when you're at first base, it's a lot different than sitting right next to the manager. So the last two years, you know, I've had him next to me. He's helped implement a style of play that I'm very proud of. He's helped implement a, a a player review process that I'm very proud of to to develop some of these young players in the big leagues. And I think his his tireless work ethic is one. His communication skills are elite, and his mind works well. The only thing he has to do is make decisions, and that's really not going to come until he gets you know a desk of his own and he's able to to run a game a certain way. I've, I've gotten kicked out a few times and gotten him a few games of exposure, but. You know, generally, it, it the experience that he's going to need to get to be the next manager and be the sort of out front in front of his team, in front of his fans, is is going to be the in game decision making, and that that's what I've been trying to keep him close to the last couple of years as I as I run the game. And you have been working, of course, with some very smart people in the front office in Detroit, as you did in Houston. But I would like to go all the way back, AJ, to the time that you spent with the Padres. I believe it was twenty ten to twenty fourteen. I believe you were the vice president of professional scouting and an assistant GM. And I assume what you learned over those years is quite a bit. I took a look and some of your many colleagues with the Padres was, you know, Jed Hoyer, Josh Burns, Josh Stein, Jason McLeod, Billy Gasparino, just to name a few. So there were some great baseball minds there that really must have helped mold how you think about baseball. For sure. And I've tried to learn something every step along the way. And I don't know all these people all the time. When I go to a new organization, when I went to San Diego, I had not spent a lot of time with Jed Hoyer or Jason McLeod other than an interview process. I had not, obviously I worked for Josh Burns in a couple different scenarios. I'm getting to know Josh Stein. He was a director of baseball ops at the time. He's now turned into the assistant GM and a, a very forward thinking person in the, in the industry. And, you know, Chris Long was in the, in the front office as well as Oliver. That we we had we had a lot of, of deep thinkers that uh, Ben Sostanovich, who was an intern at the time, Alex Slater, who's high end in the Dodgers organization now. That I think you can you can surround yourself with so many good people in this game, and you'll learn something about the game. Despite you know background of playing, a background of being in front offices and on the field, you think you're that that's going to be your best training. But some of your thought process gets sharpened by people that that didn't have the same career path as you, or didn't have the same understanding of the game as you. I mean, I. My first conversation about catcher framing was with the Padres. I'd played, you know, 10 years professionally and played in the big leagues, had been a manager, had been in a front office as a farm director. But it wasn't until my Padre days in the late 2000s that catcher framing became more popular. And like all people, your first thing to do as an ex-catcher is to resist the possibility that you could be graded that way. And how would it how would it ever impact the game? And look at what it's become now. I mean, until we have the automatic ball strike, it's one of the first skills that we look at in today's catchers is is how much they impact the strike zone. So, you know, you can spend a decade in the sport and still not, you know, not be exposed to everything and until you run into the right people. 
You mentioned a few minutes ago, AJ, uh, collaboration with the you know forthcoming GM. When I spoke to Donnie Ecker recently, the Texas Rangers offensive coordinator slash hitting coach, one of the things he brought up was matching schemes and personnel rather than simply acquiring quote unquote best athletes. And Donnie actually also brought up how some NFL coaches have a certain degree of roster control as they are the people who really understand those schemes and which players fit them. What are your thoughts on that as to how it pertains to Major League Baseball and the Tigers? So I, I think I think my job as the manager is to be versatile enough to manage a variety of teams. Like I, I'll give you a good example. When I was in in Houston, we had a stable of aces in the in the rotation. Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, Zach Greinke, Lance McCullers. I had Keuchel, at Charlie Morton. And so everybody's like, oh, he really believes in letting his starting pitchers go deep. And, and that was, yes, if you had that group, you would too. I remember somebody asked me one day, why has Kevin Cash done the opener so much and you haven't? And I rattled off all those names. Like, that's why I haven't done the opener is I have this as my starting rotation. You know, on the flip side of it, when you come to get young pitching here in Detroit, and while they're super talented, they have to be guarded and protected a little bit more, maybe the third time through. They have to be protected with some extra rest. I may even consider using an opener more so than I would before. So I, as a manager, I, I, it's, it's a little different than football as I have, I, it depends on the personnel is how I manage. I mean, I would love to have a team that's athletic. I can start runners, create pressure, high contact skills, very similar to how the Cleveland Guardians are this year, but I can't manage that style with 30% strikeout rate guys and guys that cannot run average or better. I'm just giving away outs in a poor manner. So I, I think for me as the manager, I, I need to manage the club. I think every team should have an identity. Every team should have a strength. So you got to be careful acquiring like a, a buffet of different styles and, and expecting to put them all into, into one concept. But you do have to understand that team by team, year by year has been very different. Last year's Tigers team was more athletic, had higher speed, better speed, a tick better contact rate, a tick lower strikeout rate. I could be a little bit more aggressive and risk a little bit more on the bases. This year, we were pretty pretty slow at the beginning of the season. We didn't put up a lot of contact. We weren't scoring a lot of runs. We didn't have a lot of power. And so we felt like a little bit of a boring team that never started runners or never had any action. And it, it wasn't a philosophy change. It was simply the skill sets of, of the players that you have and how do you maximize that. That's the trick. That would lead me, AJ, to ask if there actually has been and if not, if there needs to be an actual more of a Tigers philosophy as far as these are the types of players we want as opposed to simply, hey, we think this is a good player. So I think a little bit of both. I mean, I don't think you have to get too too stubborn in the players that you get. The markets kind of dictate where they are and who they are. I mean, I certainly think every team should have an identity. I think you should. There probably are some fatal flaws in players that you want to stay away from, whether it's the High strikeout, low walk, similar to how on the pitching side, you wouldn't want the high walk, low strikeout pitcher. So I, there's some fatal flaws you need to stay away from. And we, we could probably use a little bit more solidarity in, in, in how we, you know, form and put our teams together. But it's, it's hard to do that perfectly. I think in the minor leagues, we've done, had a complete overhaul in the last year. And I think Ryan Garko has done a great job at, at synthesizing those beliefs and making, Trying to trying to get the most, but it needs to be synced up with the draft and the player development, the major league talent. Philosophically, on the pitching side, I think Chris Fetter, as the leader of a pitching department, has done a great job of 
of instilling some common values and common characteristics, you know, through the, the players that we have. And certainly that'll impact our player acquisition process once we have a new GM. But, you know, I think every team will take a good player over a bad player if it even if it doesn't fit your perfect profile. But ideally the identity is somewhat consistent. And you just mentioned Ryan Garko and and player development. Earlier this week, again, we're speaking on Friday the 16th, there was an article in The Athletic that addressed a specific organization's lack of success developing pitchers. And within that article, a scout was quoted as saying that a few of the talented young pitchers on that team, talented being you know good arms, I guess, would be very, very good if they were Dodgers, Rays, or Guardians, and that this particular team maybe isn't invested enough in data and technology. So I'd like to know just the strides the Tigers have made in that area. So you know what's interesting? This is actually brings up a great topic because I got when I got hired a year and a half or so ago or two years ago, I you know from the outside in I wondered a little bit of what the infrastructure was like analytically, right? It was a, somewhat of a of a, a older school front office, and it was kind of seen around the industry as maybe not the most progressive place. And then when I got here, you know, I met Jay Sartori and what he did. Uh, in building out the analytics department and Georgia Giblin, who, who who's a tremendous person to to synthesize the information and and we we actually had more than I than I originally thought and we are ahead in the game in the, in the pitching department I think when we saw Chris Fetter get hired Gabe Rebus in the minor league Stefano Stroop from the Dodgers um, we've been able to get that up and running pretty quickly and so you have the likes of Reese Olson and Ty Madden and Wilmer Flores and some pitching prospects that maybe not entirely known right now will will burst on the scene pretty soon and you know we we do feel like pitching is going to be part of our identity moving forward with the talent that we have and that that's going to be a key part to getting back to winning faster and I think that again that that teamwork amongst all the names that I just rattled off is going to be critical in in getting it right and in getting it together of course we you know, the reputations of Cleveland and Tampa and Houston and, and Los Angeles are all warranted, but nobody really knows until you get behind the scenes what the guy does. I, I appreciate that scout's comment, but unless you're in the trenches behind the scenes of an organization, how do you know what other teams do? The teams do not just tell you what they do to try to maximize their talent. It's too competitive an environment. So I, I hate to criticize one team and, and compliment another without knowing the exact details of how they put their program together. Of course. You just mentioned a few young pitchers, AJ. Uh, Jackson Job is another who obviously has a great future. To what extent are you able to actually follow the development path of these young players? So one of the one of the things when, when the lockout happened at the beginning of the year, uh, Chris Fetter and I went to minicamp, which was the only camp that was allowed to have as all minor league players, no 40-man players. And we weren't even active participants as major league coaches, but we were observers in and around the clubhouse and then out in the field, we could we could stand and watch bullpens and watch them work. And and Jackson Job was one of the pitchers. And so we had a chance to kind of meet him and say hello and watch him a little bit, which does spark some interest in, in you know, Fett came from college. I came from the front office before. Like we have sort of the the inner burn to kind of learn a little bit more about the the growth and development. We can't follow it as closely as we could in that mini camp with our with our jobs, but I I've paid pretty close attention. And you know, he, in that mini camp, he gave up a home run to Christian Santana, an international prospect that we had just signed, and I think it was the first home run he'd ever given up, maybe in his life. <laughs> and so I, that that in itself is a is kind of a funny story to think of where these kids come from and all the adjustments that he has to make to understand that the players he's playing against 
even in the low minors, are probably the best players he's ever faced in his life. And so I, you know, I've watched his delivery clean up a little bit. They'll show videos. I've got access to our, you know, our information and our and our video programs. And I we pay close attention to those guys. I mean, that's kind of what I do during the day before I have to start my responsibilities as the manager is check up on the on the talent. I've seen Ty Madden's delivery clean up. I've seen Wilmer Flores uh, burst onto the scene. I've seen that some usage things with Reese Olsen change. And that, because of the communication that we have with our minor league people and the way that we communicate now, major league to minor league, it's it's fun to be, you know, kind of at, at arm's length a little bit in their development, but also paying attention to who could possibly be here down the road. And this has obviously been a rough year, AJ, pitching-wise at the big league level, both injury and performance-wise. That said, who stands out as bright spots on this year's uh, Tigers pitching staff? We've used 17 starting pitchers this season, and we may even use an 18th before the year is over, and which is really unheard of. I mean, a good team, most World Series teams are going to use somewhere between 8 and 12 starting pitchers. I mean, sometimes you have those miraculous years. I think San Francisco one year used five or six. I think this year Houston's maybe used six or seven. It's one of the best teams in the league. But it, generally speaking, teams are going to get double-digit starters, and we've blown that away. Now, that is it's terrible when you lose Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal and Matt Manning missed much of the year. He's back now. But it did open the door for us to see Alex Fajardo come up, Bo Brisky come up. Joey Wentz is now up, who's who's had a couple of interesting games here as a after he's rehabbed past his Tommy John and, and getting him back into the flow of being a, a prospect for us. Those have all been good. I, I think some of the development at the major league level in the bullpen has been something to pay attention to. Joe Jimenez and his swing and miss rate on his fastball is extraordinary. And it is it is fun to watch him come in and challenge in an era where fastball breaking ball usage is is more even. He pounds his fastball in areas of the strike zone that generate a ton of swing and miss. And obviously it's some of its vert, some of its extension. There's a lot of reasons why he gets a swing and miss, but I I love the fact that he has developed that over time as a as a fifth-year player who's done everything from close to to get optioned out into the minors last year. He's taken a huge step forward. Alex Lang in our bullpen has really found a niche at being more of a 50-50 usage guy with a big-time breaking ball, a big-time sinker in the upper 90s. And we've seen him grow into a into a leverage reliever, at least a bridge reliever in the middle part of the game. And then lastly, the, probably the guy who's taken the biggest step forward on the pitching side has been Jason Foley. And Jason was a non-drafted player out of Sacred Heart. We got him last year. We saw him throw 100 in minicamp, but it was all four-seamers. He's now gone to a little bit more of a two-seamer his strike throwing has gotten a lot better, and so has his production, especially against right-handed hitters. He's got to get a little bit better against lefties, but it, it's it's nice to see guys be able to learn, and maybe that's the benefit of, of not being in the race, not being in under a ton of pressure. I can allow him a little bit of a leash to, to, to fail at this level and learn, but our pitching development, I think, at this, at this season has been better than our results. Foley, Brisky, and Manning stand out to me, AJ, in that you had brought up low strikeout rates earlier as a possible, not as a red flag, but something that's not necessarily a great thing in today's game. Well, Manning, Foley, and Brisky all put up some pretty good numbers this year with strikeout rates that I believe are seven or fewer per nine innings. So is it really necessary to strike out a lot of guys in today's game? Depends what you define as a lot. You know, I think there has to be you know, some swing and miss and some characteristics that match up to be able to go get a strikeout when you need it or against a certain hitter. I mean, I 
I, I hate to just throw a blanket strikeout rate out there as a as a necessity, but I you know that's obviously one way to control some things as a pitcher. I mean, you ball and play kind of takes it out of your control a little bit. But I think there has to be some level. Now, maybe it doesn't have to be the same for everybody. Jason Foley going to throw two seamers in the mid to upper 90s over the plate, and we're going to tell him to challenge the strike zone. Guys are going to put early count fastballs in play. It can't be his fault. So if we ch- if we chase strikeouts from the beginning and don't throw strikes, he's going to get out of leverage. And now all of a sudden he's going to be less effective of a pitcher by trying to chase more strikeouts. So it may vary. It's probably more important for Matt Manning and Bo Brisky than, than necessarily a reliever with – with stuff that moves and stuff that can that can he can control contact on the ground. But if you're giving ball contact in the air and you're combining that with not not getting any swing and miss, it feels to me like that's a recipe for disaster as a pitcher. So it kind of depends on your characteristics. Okay. And we are starting to run short on time, AJ, but I want to hit you with a, a few more quick things. I'm not sure about Brisky, but I do know that Foley and Manning have done a really good job this year of keeping the ball in the ballpark. On a less positive note, so have most pitchers who have faced the Tigers lineup. With those things in mind, I saw recently that the fences may be coming in at Comerica. It's been, yeah, it's been a topic. You know, I, I get asked about it because it, Riley Green just hit a ball. I think it was like 106 miles an hour at a pretty good trajectory that went 419 feet and was caught at the wall. And we, instead of winning by one, we lost by one. It, was, it would have been a 3-0 homer that put, gave us the lead late in game. I think it was the eighth inning against Stanek the other day. And that that prompted a question to me about the fence. And I, you know, I, I bristle at it because it's out of my control. I don't really know. I, I've got to get a team that understands we're going to play the dimensions. We can't blame the park every time it's to our disadvantage. Trey Mancini would have had a home run a couple innings earlier had the fence been moved in as well. So it's been an open topic around Detroit, you know, dating back to even when I played here in the early 2000s and it was the old fence where the orange fence was was way back there. So they've already moved it once before I got here. I don't know what what Mr. Illich is going to do when it comes to the fence moving forward. If, if they move it in, great. It's a little more neutralized. If they don't, great. We're going to play the dimensions and and hopefully understand that 81 games here Yes, we're going to be frustrated when we hit a ball like Riley Green did the other day, but the fence is not moving in that particular game, and you got to play the dimensions. And with moving fences in mind, AJ, of course, the Orioles wanted to be more neutral, they said, with moving their fences back at Camden, but they actually, I think, got pretty extreme, I think. Yeah, it feels like it. I'm going to see it next week, and I, I see the right-handers are pretty frustrated <laughs> with the balls that are, that I mean, because not only do they move it back, they move the fence up. And that it seems like that's a very big. I mean, I've watched Aaron Judge, you know, barely clear the wall. I've watched a lot of their hitters, uh, Austin Hayes, and and others that that have Mountcastle, I guess, has has had a hard time. But I, it's going to be interesting to see him for three days. And you definitely want maybe to, you know, I think the goal should always be in the middle range, not so extreme hitter or pitcher, and just kind of be fair. For sure, you mentioned Riley Green a few minutes ago. I should have you address the progress that he and Spencer Torkelson have made this year, especially in Torkelson's case, maybe not the season Tiger fans are expecting. Yeah, I mean, I think the hope is always that that, that the top prospects are going to come up and, you know, for lack of a better term, have the Julio Rodriguez impact. It's like massive production and and really take off with their career. The majority of these guys have a little bit of a learning curve and, and maybe aren't the best version of themselves in their very first taste of the big leagues. And that and that's okay. I think both of our guys have done a nice job in different they've gotten there differently. Riley got hurt to start the year. 
when he when he broke his foot off a of Garrett Cole pitch in spring training, and then um, you know Torque made our team, and then had had to be sent down to kind of kind of cleanse his his mind and get back to being a little bit more 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 weight distribution in the right way, get his swing back geared towards the middle of the field, and get away from the big league failure. Greeny has has ad- adapted to the big leagues pretty fast. He's hitting in our leadoff spot. He still doesn't draw a ton of walks, but he's pretty dangerous at the top of the order. I'm trying to get him as many at-bats as I can before the end of the year. And he provides great energy, great defense. His diving plays are legit because his pre-pitch setup is great. His first step is really good. And he's defying a little bit of the criticism that he wouldn't be a center fielder right out of the chute while he's holding his own as a hitter. Torque has been... Much better since he's come back, having a, a very clean path. He's going to be a hitter first, power second, despite the the hope that he was going to be a power guy right out of the chute. He's got a ton of power, but he's actually a better hitter than anything. And I, his zone control, his decisions are good. I think he's going to be a, a well-rounded hitter, and, and he's demonstrating that in his time back. He's, his reaction to failure has been has been better. Um, he had a game the other day where he had four balls over 105 miles an hour and went 0 for 4. And that can frustrate anybody, but but seeing Torque come back the next day and have quality at bats and and not, you know, not overreact to a to a day where he didn't get his hits was something that we didn't see at the beginning of the year. So I love both these kids. I think they're gonna be major parts of 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 our good team when when we can get good and and this year is going to be beneficial to them, even though it was a little bit of a, a of a rocky year. So, last thing, it, well, actually, no, uh, two more things. How would you assess this year with this team? Was it a good learning experience, or was it mostly just frustration? A little both. You know, I think it, both things can exist. We we definitely should should have been better. We also have had some reasons why we haven't, and some of that is you know injuries have not been kind to us. We haven't even had the one team that we thought when you came in in saw some spring training. We never had that team in a regular season. It, it mostly because Riley Green was not there. Our pitching injuries happened pretty early. Casey Mize went out. Tarek Skubal followed out halfway through the year. Matt Manning missed the, the first half. So we never had the team that we had envisioned. So it's hard to judge us. Uh, but despite that, we haven't played a great brand of baseball. And I feel responsible because I'm the manager. I'm going to keep pushing these guys. And, and we did learn a lot in the process about other players that maybe wouldn't have gotten up here without the injuries. And that maybe that's a long-term benefit, but short-term, it was pretty frustrating. So last one, AJ, you mentioned earlier framing and the possibility that uh, robot umpires will take that away. There are obviously new rule changes now. And the one that I most look at and roll my eyes is the shift going away. As someone who values gaining an advantage through data like you do, I'm guessing you're maybe not a big fan. Yeah, I mean, I the only reason I really support it is I'm tired of talking about it, and, I, and everybody thinks that it's taken away from people's enjoyment of the game. That I that I suppose we should try it a different way. I, I think we're going to find different ways, and maybe more advantages are going to be teams how they play their infield. Now, I, I think there's this there's a little bit of a, a of a misdirection here that no shift means all of a sudden we're going to go back to these these X's on the field where everybody's standing equidistant apart, and we're playing like what we grew up when we were seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and that's where they're going to play. And it's not going to be how it is. We're still going to guard the holes. We're still going to probably shallow up our outfielder. You could even see, you know, it's a situation where against a player who's not going to give up pull power, would you play the right fielder a little bit closer? And are you going to see some nine to, to three putouts? Like I, I think the league is not just going to go back to standing 
in the spots that you used to have in Little League. They're still going to play in the areas in which they're hit the most, or now at least the second most. Um, and so I, I think the shift, banning the shift is fine. I, I mean, I was just funny. I was talking to some players the other day, and they think the middle of the field is going to be so free now, and that's not the case. They're gonna, we're going to put the guy exactly as far as the possibly as we can the rule and still try to cover that middle part of the field where if you get a ground ball up the middle, my guess is a person's still going to be standing there even though he's he has to start on – you know, the, the, the one side of the base or the other. So I'm a little skeptical that it's going to like all of a sudden fix the entire game that people are frustrated with, but I'll go with it as, as, you know, as, as part of the fan experience we're trying to increase, or maybe we increase a little bit of offense. Some of these pull left-handed hitters can now get their single in the hole whenever they dive hook it. We'll see what happens. Right. I guess what we don't want to do, AJ, is take away some of the premium of outsmarting your opponent, yeah. of, be, of being smarter than your other opponent. No, I do like that some people you know, would be frustrated. Early in, in my years managing, there would be so many teams were hesitant to run the shift and they were afraid of the opposite field ground ball or that 17 hopper where you get the groan out of everybody. And then by the end, everybody's doing it and it feels a little bit no- more normalized. I think the one benefit that I'm looking forward to and and is the is the athleticism of the player is going to increase. The infield range is going to be talked about a little bit more. Perhaps some players that are not getting compensated for being good on defense, you know, maybe a little bit more popular now than they were before and and we can kind of increase a little bit of our athleticism in the game. Maybe that's a benefit that we don't know yet or an unintended benefit. And the players will get to showcase their overall skill sets a little bit. Yeah, whenever Whenever, you know, in the NFL, when somebody's a high passing offense, I, I want to be able to put an extra defensive back in. Like, you got to combat some of these, you know, sort of the some team wants to do it one way, we want to do it another. That's that's the competition, but I'll adjust, but, I, but I'm going to miss it. No, Manny Acta told me, uh, I believe four or five years ago already, that don't be surprised if you see four man outfields in the near future. And it did happen, and apparently MLB doesn't like innovation. So, so here <laughs> yeah, we go. no, it does. It does look. It gets frustrating for the players and stuff like that. And I think that's where I'm worn down to the point of let's try it a different way and see if we like it. And hopefully, we hold on to the the idea that if we don't like something, we can go back to it. it most of these rule changes that we've had over the years have ultimately become the new normal. But the strategy part of it is is tougher to swallow because I you know the hitters that are that are gonna benefit from not making an adjustment. And that's that was part of the competitive nature of, of trying to get them out. Super. AJ, I think I probably worn you out with too many questions today. So let's close with this and I will thank you again for coming on to Fangraphs Adia. All good. Thanks for having me. Okay, and thanks everybody for listening to Fangraphs Adia. Hey, welcome back to Fangraphs Audio. I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Dan Zimborski. And Dan, we're here to talk about what the biggest story in baseball, in, in many ways, Aaron Judge. Oh, I thought we were talking about rolling R's, but yeah, Aaron Judge <laughs> is the biggest story. I mean, Triple Crown, that's, it's, it's not really sabermetric, but Triple Crowns are cool. They're just and I like neat, cool yeah. things. Yeah, cool things are cool. That's what I learned as a kid. I especially like them when they're, uh, this is the wrong way to think of it, but like an empty Triple Crown. Like, Miggy's Triple Crown was great, but it was... You know, in, in a pretty good batting season, whereas Judge is chasing one in a historic batting season. And that just is more fun to me. And I think, I mean, what also makes it more impressive is is simply the numbers involved. I mean, like, you know, you're in a down season offensively and sometimes, you know, you you lead the league hitting like 35 home runs or something. Right. He's, he's going to hit 60. 
in a in an environment that's really really poorly conducive to hitting 16 there's, there's something unusual about offensive records in this way because generally they happen in off in offensive environments that are conducive to it same with pitching uh it's not a coincidence that bob gibson has his post dead ball record for era in a season where there was very little offense but he's gone counter to that he's just like no is for me this is an offensive season yeah they don't call it the year of the no pitchers other than bob gibson context matters it needs, it needs to be shorter. It needs to be a little shorter than that. <laughs> Context definitely matters. And there's an outside chance that Judge, I mean, very unlikely, but possible. The Judge will top 60 and no one else will get to 40, which would just be, <laughs> I don't know, that, that's Babe Ruth stuff right there. When I was when I was running Triple Crown Probabilities last week for an article, which you can read on Fangrass.com still, it was just funny that essentially the, his Triple Crown odds came down to his batting average odds because there's no chance that... You know, anyone's going to catch him in home runs because there's just not enough time left, even if he quits baseball to become a monk or something. There's just not enough time. And it's almost the same with RBIs. And it was last week. And it's even more at this point. Yeah, I think it's just if you simulated a billion seasons when anyone catch him in home runs. I didn't do a billion seasons because of the computational right. problems with that. Yeah, I did do. I hit the million season sim several times when I was trying to get a few things just to see if they would happen. And generally speaking with RBIs, when I ran the projections last week, the the scenario was that he would be injured. Right. I could see that in RBIs. Home runs is just like somebody would have to go on a crazy Yeah, Jose Ramirez, are, well, not Jose Ramirez, but there's Otani's not going to hit 22 home runs in 15 games or whatever, however many is left. Yeah, Jordan could only keep his three home run a pace up clip for so long. Like, it's just impossible. It's yeah, very sure. impressive. Do you remember a home run race being this over this early? I don't. I don't. It's 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 a slaughter. I think it's it feels a little like one of those 1920s home run races early on when Babe Ruth was hitting home runs and nobody else was. Yeah. I always love the statistics. You know, Babe Ruth hit more home runs than the Detroit Tigers or whatever. It kind of, kind of feels like that, that this year, which is, I feel like, as good of, a, of an endorsement of Aaron Judge's season as you can have. It feels like fake baseball again. At least for him. Uh, but for the, him specifically. Yeah. The funny thing is the, the Tigers are, are so bad offensively that you could say that Eric Judge hit more home runs than the Tigers this year. And someone would probably still look it up to tell you that you're wrong. Because <laughs> as, I, as I did that, I looked this up, they have hit 93 home runs. But that's close enough that you might have had to look it up if you weren't sure. Because it's fun to lie occasionally on Twitter to make someone look it up. I, I, I've, I've insisted that Melky Cabrera was short for Melkington for years. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, I love, I love doing this kind of thing. I like to kind of seed slightly wrong things with friends and family over time my little sister i don't think she knows how many subtle facts about history or science that she might know wrong because i told her as a little kid now she's probably figured out that the pyramid on the dollar bill is not where all the presidents are entombed but i used to give her very subtle things like like the wrong positive or negative for molecules just to just to seed that i had a friend who at one point I just dropped a little fact on him because he was an A's fan. And I told him that Bob Welch of uh, the picture for the Oakland A's yeah. was the same Bob Welch who played in Fleetwood Mac. Wow. Uh, that, he, that, he, that he left Fleetwood Mac in 1974 because the real Bob Welch did. This is before Wikipedia. And he went and he, he pitched for the Dodgers and then the A's. And I discovered like 15 years later, I just kind of 
brought it up on the summit. He still believed that. I didn't want to push it just in case he might have been motivated to look it up. But it makes me feel good to know that these little facts are out there somewhere. This is uh, this is kind of a shocking realization for me because I do this too. Like the, the exact same thing. When Trevor Story debuted in the majors, I have a friend named Kevin Story. Hey, Kevin, if you're listening to this. And I just mentioned to my wife offhand that they were cousins. And then I just didn't bring it up again. <laughs> and, you know, a year later, she's like, man, Kevin's cousin is better. You know, I thought he was just some random guy, but he seems like he's pretty good. I was like, wait, who? I had just forgotten about this one. But I, I also enjoy uh, sneaking some of these in occasionally. And sometime when we're uh, not talking about Aaron Judge, I've got some other some other good ones. But I don't want to digress too far just because... I feel like it's kind of a disservice to judge. I have a judge fact for you, Dan. He's not actually a judge. <laughs> That's true. Is that it? Okay. Unfun fact. If you look at his offensive runs above average, so the Yankees are 85 offensive runs above average and Judge is 80. So he's basically the Yankees offense above average. Sure, you know, that that's not that surprising, I guess. They've run out pretty bad teams offensively at various points this year. But here's the fun fact. If you just took Aaron Judge, offensive runs above average, just our off on, uh, on Fangraph's leaderboards, and you removed the Yankees, he would be the fifth best team. So the Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Mets, and the Blue Jays have produced more runs above average than Aaron Judge, and that's it. <laughs> that's everybody. Now, it's about average, so you know the Tigers are 130 runs below average. Sorry, Tigers, got to pick on you guys again. <laughs> and he's actually not that far off the pace of hitting as many home runs as them. They don't have 100 yet. But it's just very impressive to me that I can't even think of a season that's been like that. You know, I know that the best players have disproportionate shares because there are bad players on our team that drag down the average. It's not above zero or anything. But wow, we haven't seen a season like this, I don't think, since, uh, I mean, have you? Not since you've been an adult. Yeah, I mean, offensively, not even Maybe close. Maybe Barry Bonds. Of course, you know, one could say <laughs> that Judge is still 18 points of OPS behind Matt Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> One could, but, I mean, the volume is impressive, too. Remember, Matt Carpenter also has a better plate appearance to home run ratio than Judge. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you love small sample sizes? Small sample sizes are the best. Now, before we went, I guess not on camera, on microphone, I was getting you to roll your R's to say triple crown because I think it sounds more classy that way. Uh, so you want, you want me to do that for the record? Yeah, a good, a good long roll of the R's. The triple crown. There you go. Those yeah, are, that, those that, are that sounds really long good. for no reason. That was that was pretty good. It was it felt very Eartha Kitty. <laughs> That's uh, not really what I was going for. I was going for uh, my first great Spanish teacher, Mrs. Ramirez. Uh, hello, if she's listening, would she be proud of you? She's probably not listening. I mean, probably. I feel like teachers are mostly proud of their former students, isn't that? Especially first graders. Like, could you could you imagine? Like, I was I was not a good Spanish student. I've I was always happy uh, when when writing for ESPN when one of my articles would be translated for ESPN Deportes, and I always wanted to kind of like save those articles and give it to my old Spanish teacher, and try to say that I wrote it. Ah, so you're you're tying back our two themes of today, which is uh, making up stories in Spanish. That's how we. That's how everything is cyclical. Now. Speaking of of the Tigers, our friend David Lorelei just talked with AJ Hinch, the manager of the Detroit Tigers. But since their conversation, they have a new general manager who I think is maybe 20 years younger than me. I'm not sure how old he is. I'm very confused by the whole situation. So what are your take on the on the Tigers? Do you think that this overhaul uh, of the front office will be the one that sticks? Because the the Al Avila 
generation never really got going in a way. Can Scott Harris kind of change the the culture of the organization internally in a way that Avila couldn't? It's obviously too soon to say. I like their idea, which is an idea that they've copied of every other baseball team, of just hiring somebody who's currently working for a team that seems successful. You know, it's better safe than sorry kind of deal. Just hiring somebody from the Giants seems fairly reasonable. I just have no clue of how it'll translate. Like, is the giant success down to Farhan? Is it specific to the franchise? Can it be replicated? Can one guy bring the processes with him? How much of it is individual people and how much of it is institutional? I feel like all these questions are hard to answer. Yeah, one of the those types of questions, I always have trouble with those. And Chad, I don't know how often you get them. When people yeah. ask you, who's at fault for this? Like, how would I know? Even if you know who in an organization did X and Y decision, it, it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah. And they're not telling me in most cases. I mean, I talk to people in front offices. You talk to people in front offices. We all do. But they tell us what they want to tell us. Yeah. And not much that they don't. Right. <laughs> like, they're not reliable narrators. Why would they be? Yeah, there's there's no reason. I mean, I tell people, people are always surprised when, when someone reports something a GM said and it turns out to be wrong. But it's part of the game. As a as a journalist, reporter, analyst, whatever you want to call us, uh, you expect to be lied to. I once, I, I know in a, since it was kind of, you know, not for attribution, I once had a GM tell me that there was no discussion about trading a player about an hour before the player was traded. Trade came together fast. Yeah, it wasn't a coincidence that I asked about it, and then they just suddenly worked it out. It's like, no, I, I, I know you lied to me. Well, if Dan thinks we should trade this player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, I, I, I doubt anyone's ever done that. But the Tigers are an interesting challenge to take over because yes, you are. look at the organization, and they're not quite as sad, let's just say, as some of the other teams that you have with, with little talent. I mean, you look, they have right now almost the same record as the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. But the Tigers, they have more upside in spending. They do have some young pitching with some upside. Yeah, there are a lot of them are injured at the moment, but I mean, they have Riley Green. I don't, obviously a lot has come off Spencer Torkelson's shine, we'll say, because he hasn't really even hit in the minors this year, which is really concerning in addition to his struggles in the majors but it would be stupid to throw in the talent on Torkelson at this point yeah totally agreed it's a team with talent and an ability to spend and that makes them interesting I think they will be a good team quicker than the Royals even though I like some of the Royals talent better simply because I think that there's a there's a potential to be better run than the Royals and spend more than the Royals yeah I agree with that in general I like the Royals chances better over the past call it three years and I've been a little bit disappointed there. Look, don't bring in Mike Matheny to manage your team when you're trying to figure out how to get a bunch of young people onto the field reasonably. That That's on them. But I think the Tigers' chances going forward are better for basically the reasons you named. I also think their volatility is really high. Like, yeah, they have some interesting young players, but I don't think they have enough that unless they all hit like 80th percentile outcomes and, hey, teams can help players hit those outcomes, but a lot of that just comes down to the players and comes down to you know, stuff that the teams can't quite forecast. Prospects bust on good teams, too. But unless all those guys kind of hit the the top of their ranges, they need more, obviously. And so I like the idea of bringing in somebody from a system that you think can overhaul your development 
I think it's reasonable to say that it doesn't feel like the Tigers have had done a great job developing, you know, the next cut down from the very top prospects internally. I don't know who that falls on. Same deal. Like, even if the, the general manager you're talking to, you're talking to, I'm talking to, you know, the analysts or whatever, even if they're not lying to you, they have their own perspective that skews their view. And I don't think anyone can really tell you from the outside what went right or wrong in the Tigers' developmental pipeline. But something was not going right. And some of the things, it, it's hard to really know how to blame the organization for. Uh, you look at, say, the season that that, that uh, Candelario has had. Yeah, that's I mean, he, all, but Yeah, he's he's an established luck. player. He's not a rookie. He he led the league in doubles last year, and he's sure, hitting, yeah. you know, horribly this year. Not just the down year, a horrible year. Jonathan Scope just collapsed yeah. this year after, after, you know, three pretty good seasons in a row. It's hard to really blame the team for that. I don't think that coaching has that much of a volatile effect on players or we would see projections work very differently when, when players change teams. I, I think that they've been... They haven't been, I mean, I, I won't say the, the team's been run extremely well. Uh, I think they got a little ahead of themselves when they believed that they were in contention this year. But I think they've also been fairly unlucky. Yeah, I don't know how much they really believed they were in contention versus how much they were trying to do the Astros thing and get a one-year head start on the actual contention, if that makes sense. You know, you, you sign the free agency a year too early rather than a year too late. But maybe they deluded themselves a little bit, but... If you convincing yourself that you're better than you think you are just means that you spend more money on free agents, like, okay, <laughs> it's not it's not the worst organizational failing. But I do think it's hard to know from the outside, but they really haven't developed anything other than top prospects of late. You look at their roster, there's not a lot of those guys who are, you know, success stories from mid-round draft picks kind of things. They have Ryan Kreidler starting at the moment. And he's a fourth round pick. And then aside from that, they got, you know, some rule five picks and some first rounders. Like not really the, the way that you look at a system that just the Cardinals are the extreme example. But I don't know what other than Arnado and Goldschmidt, it feels like everyone on the Cardinals was a seventh round pick that somehow became good. And the Tigers have not done that in the Alavila era. I don't know if that's Alavila's fault. And, you know, like that's kind of maybe an unfair snapshot because Tarek Skubal was a ninth round draft pick. And maybe I'm just thinking this because he was hurt. But if they can get more like mid-tier developmental stuff, I think that would really be a big tailwind here because the top-end talent's there. I like some of the free agents they have. I like Eduardo Rodriguez. I think Javi Baez is a good bounce-back candidate. I like Candelario, like you said. I don't know if the timelines all line up. Like Maybe those guys will be gone by the time anything that the new system develops is in the majors. But there's, there's a lot interesting on the Tigers. It's not like your average perpetually down and out team. They've got some some potential fun players and some potential for being a fun team soon. Yeah, the lining up is kind of the hard thing with, with, with some of these teams because they all, a lot of it is timing. You look at the Royals and the Royals during Dayton Moore's era are the third, have the third worst record in baseball, but everything good in the organization kind of gelled at the exact same time. Plus, they got lucky. And so they got the World Series win. And then we had to pretend Dayton Moore was an amazing GM for a year when, in fact, the Royals are kind of the colonial Williamsburg of teams where you go back in time when you when you visit them and see like, oh, look, a 1970s GM. How how quaint. Oh, look, team speed. He how wears that a work? wig at work. <laughs> you, you mentioned the Cardinals. Are you strutting about the Cardinals? Because they were kind of poo-pooed compared to the Brewers this year. As, as we speak, they, they have an eight-game lead over the Brewers. They look like they're going to kind of 
actually beat their normal, you know, 88 to 92 win window that they love to be in. So does it how does it feel to be a Cardinals fan now, despite holes, real, very real holes in the team? Yeah, it's a it's a strange Cardinals year in that they have very good players, but some weaknesses. Normally, they have no good players and no weaknesses. Or not no good players, no, no <laughs> that great was mean. players. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to call you on that. How dare you, sir? They really thread the needle. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, normally the Cardinals way is to have a bunch of three war guys and no MVP candidates. And you look at the end of the year and you're like, that team won 89 games? And it's like, yeah, well, they, they didn't play a single bad player all year. And all their bad players hit well. And that's not really been the case this year. They've They've had some problems. And... Yadier Molina is just a giant hole at this point, unfortunately. That's that's not fun for me to say. He's just, you know, imagine being a catcher at that age. I imagine he has trouble standing up and sitting down. His knees must be made of... I can't even think of something that could be made of so porously. Pork rinds! Pork rinds. There you go. That's perfect. Sorry, I've been, I've been thinking about pork rinds because I ordered some pork rinds from Amazon. Ah. And for some reason, I thought that 32 ounces was fluid ounces because, you know, pork rinds are a fluid. Uh, but <laughs> oh, apparently wow. it was two pounds of pork rinds. That sounds like and a lot. It, it is. A, so I had this giant like jug of pork rinds and apparently they all expire in December. So I need to eat like 75 pork rinds a day to eat them before they spoil. So that's not going to happen. And I don't think, you know, a, a, a food kitchen is going to want a half filled jug of rinds. pork rinds. So I'm 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 going to live on pork rinds for a week. That, that's that's my life now. See if you can use them as like a topping on some other food. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Good. Do the chopped route. Here's my. I'm serving my chicharron encrusted orange ruffy. Yeah. Exactly. You could. Um. I feel like I could. I could make something work with that. Like make a chicken breast and kind of crumble up some pork rinds on the top to finish it. That could be good. It's a Dutch apple cake with a pork rind streusel on top. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you gotta you gotta mix the salty with the sweet. Oh man, uh, Cardinals wise, I don't know. Like, I feel a little bit unlucky that the year that the two stars they went out and acquired—great job, John Mozeliak, by the way—had their probably they'll both be their best seasons with the Cardinals, just mathematically, just because they're really good seasons. And that's usually how that works. It feels kind of unlucky that they had a lot of kind of youth brownouts and injury issues and pitching disasters in the year where if they had their normal depth. And had these two star turns, they would be pushing for 100 wins. It would feel more like the old Pujols-Edmonds Cardinals. I, I do feel like they got a little bit unlucky there. But on the other hand, they got lucky to have their stars kind of both pop off at the same time. Call it about even. I don't know. I was never that down on the Cardinals. And I never quite understood why anyone would think the NL Central was anything other than a toss-up. But of course it's a toss-up because the Cardinals are always good. And the Brewers are usually pretty good. And especially of late. And there so, are three other teams, too. That yeah, is the fact. There are three other teams. And occasionally those teams, you know, get in the picture. Except for the Pirates. The Cardinals over Pirates streak of the Cardinals finishing ahead of the Pirates in the standings. It's been a record for a while. And it just keeps going. And I don't even know what it is now. I think it's like 25 or 30 years. But, yeah, I'm not really crowing about the Cardinals. Because should you be that surprised that they're going to pass 90 wins? Like, no. Nah. Like, maybe it's 88 sometimes. But they're pretty good. They're usually pretty good. It's a great team to root for. If you have somehow stumbled upon this podcast and have no baseball allegiances, I think you should root for the Cardinals because it's pretty fun. They're never bad. And you always get meaningful games in September. I like it. And this year feels about the same. I 
have really enjoyed the Pujols chase. I, I think that would be fun, even if the Cardinals were terrible this year. Yeah, he, he's been pretty respectable. He's been crazy. Now, to refer to what you said a minute ago, if you are listening and you're not a baseball fan or have a baseball team and you're on this podcast, please tell us how you got here because I have no idea and that might be interesting information. Yeah, that's true. Now, with, with the Cardinals, I mean, you could make the argument that the, the pickups from the Padres of, of obviously Soto and, and to a lesser extent, obviously Josh Bell, that got more press, but you can make a very strong argument. In fact, I would make the argument that Jordan Montgomery and, and Jose Quintana have been the more impactful acquisitions in terms of 2022, at least. Yeah, I thought the Quintana trade, I, I think it remains to be seen how much the Montgomery trade will pan out the Cardinals way in the long run, because I think Bader is a really good player. I think, you know, it's easy to look at it now and say, well, Bader hasn't played and Montgomery's been good. I think both teams will like that trade in the end. I don't think the Yankees are going to miss Jordan Montgomery as much as it's looked like they will in the short term. And I think Bader's quite good. And you have seen the absence of Bader, although he's been injured, so he'd be absent either way. You have seen that absence impact the Cardinals generally, that they don't really have a center fielder. They've been playing Lars Newtbar out there. Dylan Carlson is going to get a shot to hold down center and... Look, maybe he can handle center field, but it didn't look like it before this year. So I think there's some, there's certainly some risk that the Cardinals took on by trading away Bader, who is just unquestionably a useful player because of his defense. They got Quintana for basically a busted prospect in Johan Oviedo. I, I like Johan Oviedo, but I don't think he'll ever figure out where the ball's going. He's more of a reliever guy at this point, and Quintana's been awesome. I think he has a really interesting free agency case this offseason, actually. You know, he was on a, a nothing deal this year, one year, two million. And I don't think there's a lot of pitchers in this mid-tier Anthony DiSclefani, Alex Wood kind of range that I'd like more than Quintana. And those guys are getting multi-year deals with eight figures on them. Yeah, hopefully Quintana doesn't get a huge deal so I can see him still coming back. Uh, Montgomery, of course, has long been a favorite of mine. But the news isn't all good because Paul Goldschmidt has kind of dropped off in his tri- triple, triple, I, I can't do it. Triple right, crown well, raise. So now uh, viewers, compare and contrast, and listeners, I suppose, and let us know who you liked more. Yeah, I I, I vote for Ben's because I can't roll my R's. Yeah, Goldschmidt has uh, has cooled it off a little bit. Yeah, he's he's still up there in batting average. He's behind only Freeman. He's, he's six behind Pete Alonso as we talk in RBIs, which isn't insurmountable. But the problem is, is he's dropped off a little in the home runs. Schwerber has a four home run lead, and Riley and Alonso are between them and Goldschmidt. Uh, since I wrote the article, there's been kind of a a branching of the probabilities in the zips from the Triple Crown. Uh, has Aaron Judge made an out since you wrote the article? Oh, a, a couple, but Goldschmidt's odds have dropped off considerably. They were both what three, four percent. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, at, give or at take. The time and now it's now the aggregate odds have gone up. Yeah, well, for Judge certainly. Yeah. Uh, Judge, uh, I, I posted it on Twitter, but Judge was up over twenty percent. Did you see he's in the he's the sole member of the Five Barrel Club now? Oh, I did not know that. So there have been a, a number of players with four barrels in one game. So you know hit the ball really hard in the air, very likely to be extra bases. That's what a barrel is. Judge had five on Sunday. That's that's a bunch. You know, baseball actually has now, from StatCast, a stat called barrels. How has some kind of liquor company not capitalized this? That's like, true. Announced that like players that have a, a four or five home run game receive a barrel of fine bourbon. Yeah, that's a good point. The four barrel club, they could just... 
like have some bourbon company name one of their bourbons the four barrel club it's easy or have you know every or the player who leads the league in barrels every year have them come in and and have a limited run of bourbon for that i would buy some Aaron judge signature eagle bourbon eagle yeah. rare bourbon Fangraphs Audio Judge. sponsored by High West's A Midwinter Night's Dram, my favorite bourbon. Uh, I could. I. What time of the day do you think is appropriate to have bourbon? For me, it's a. It's a. It's been a bad day, like six p.m. kind of thing. Or it's a. It's cold, and I guess that never happens here. So really, just that. Never been cold here. It's great. I. I think one of the reasons that we like bourbon with desserts so much is that it gives us a little more opportunity to have bourbon. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. It's delicious, but not always appropriate. Like, you know, you're at a kid's birthday party. You probably shouldn't be drinking bourbon. But if you have apple pie, you can have <laughs> bourbon in the apple pie. Oh, yeah. Hey, I hate to do this because I was talking before we went on about how silly I find MVP discussions. And I promise you that I will not bring up the AL because I don't want to. But We could bring up the AL. I don't want to. Who do you think? But Otani's a picture when he's not, when he's hitting somehow. Yeah. Sorry. Who do you think should win the NL MVP? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. Now, I I'm not. I believe you don't have a vote on this this year, right? Just I do not have a vote there. on this. Yeah, I'd have I'd have to kind of play dumb if if yeah, yeah. we did. I mean, technically, I don't think we're in trouble until after we voted because they say don't discuss your vote. They but they don't say don't discuss your possible future vote. Right. I vote for the Rookie of the Year award this year. Uh, I guess they keep putting me in that one because they figure I know all the players. Yeah, that's. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you want to have a, a vote for players who are maybe less known, put the internet writers on it. And plus, I, it, the nice side effect this year is there's probably no red that me not voting first will get people angry with me. Uh, I had I, I still get you know a couple bits of hate DMs every month about my vote. But in any case, Goldschmidt Arenado is a really really tough battle. If I, if I had to vote today, I think I mean I generally consider you know war and those measures are close enough that. There's no real statistical edge for someone. So then you're kind of saying, oh, well, I have to break the tie somehow. I can't just declare everybody a winner and say, oh, they're tied for first. And yeah. then uh, Machado's third uh, or Freeman's third. There are third. actually six players within 0.7 war in the NL. And that is crazy. And I think you could vote for any of them for first place. And I'd say, okay, yeah, I guess. I would vote for Goldschmidt if I were ending the season tomorrow. And I kind of think he's going to win just because... Oh, he's going to win. I think offensive numbers just matter more, basically, for the way people vote than war. I, th I think they care a lot more about... It's reductive to say WRC+, plus, but if you had to pick one number, that wouldn't be a bad one. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that, that still wins. I mean, things like picture wins in, in Cy Young have been, have been, you know, a little less important than they used to be and the crowd that votes for the season end awards tends to be a little younger yeah. than the hall of fame votes simply because you don't need 10 years i voted my first year in the baseball writers association i don't i don't cast my first hall of fame vote for three more years but for me what, what, when you have essentially a tie then it comes down to kind of a series of arbitrary tiebreakers and those are hard i tend to kind of be biased for third baseman because i tend to think that if you if if you look at the the defensive variance between a good third baseman and a poor third baseman, I don't think that third base is necessarily the position that's been most efficiently solved, so to speak, that balance between offense and defense. Yeah. And I think the positional adjustment for third base might 
be a run or two too light and that they should have a smaller positional adjustment. But that's, you know, an esoteric opinion. But when you're talking about breaking a tie, you kind of have those things. Yeah. It doesn't factor into my book, but there was an argument on Reddit uh, about Goldschmidt and Arenado. And someone, of course, had the ridiculous argument that they should be completely eliminated because of the COVID and the clause about about team loyalty and, and stuff, which there is in the MVP rules. Now, just eliminating them from the MVP for that is kind of silly. But there comes a point that if you think about a tiebreaker and if you have a statistical tie, could the fact that they sat out an important series on the road be that tiebreaker? I mean, for me, yeah. I, I think that was... I think it would have to be a tiebreaker because... It's, yeah, it's not huge. You don't say, oh, well, he's not even the top 10. I mean, that's just stupid. Like, the things that I, I think it's bad for are the kind of things that I don't think should matter too much in MVP, like leadership and team morale and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think, I think what they did was awful for that. Really bad. And kudos to the Cardinals and to Ali Marmol for helping the team play through that. Because I could imagine if you're going to Toronto and the manager's like, hey, by the way, our two best players aren't coming because they don't care about you guys that much. That could feel pretty bad, and you could just like uh, like play really badly in those games. But they didn't, and so credit to the team for that. I think that makes it a tiebreaker. And I just generally would not care who I voted for between those two. Like I would think about it forever and parse it, but I, w- I wouldn't feel bad voting for either one because I think they're both quite deserving. I think voting for any of the next four required a little bit of a leap of faith. Like to get Freddie Freeman close to Paul Goldschmidt in wins above replacement on Fangraphs. You have to think that Goldschmidt is a much worse first base defender than Freeman. And, eh, I don't know, man. Like, I can maybe understand thinking that he's a better defender, but historically he hasn't been. And I don't really know how first base outs above average work. And if you kind of average all the defensive systems, then Goldschmidt might actually be a better defender. I, I think that one's kind of a stretch. And while Freeman has a higher batting average, he has a much lower slugging percentage. Much lower on base percentage, or lower on base percentage, not much lower. He hasn't played that much more. He, I think he's just like, you know, worst hitter this year. They're both great hitters. And after that, it's kind of a bunch of interesting guys who should get top five votes and maybe some number two votes. But I think in actuality, it's just going to be a runaway for Goldschmidt, right? Like, yeah, I, I, I don't I can't think people see it. value Arnado's defense as highly as we do. Yeah, I, I value it very highly. Yeah, but it, it's hard to get Freeman over Goldschmidt because they're similar in their job roles. And when things are similar, they're easier to compare. And like like if I said, if I gave you two bourbons, see, I'm, I'm, I'm tying this all together into one very tidy little plan. If I gave you bourbon A and bourbon B, it, it wouldn't be that hard to say which one you like better. But if I gave you a bourbon... Or a free lawn mowing. <laughs> right. Then, you know, you have you can still verify, like, do I want the bourbon or do I not want to have to mow the lawn? You, you can compare it, but there's differences between a quality bourbon and a quality lawn mowing. So it, it's a little harder to compare Freeman. It's, well, it's easy to compare Freeman to Goldschmidt, but it's a little harder, not quite as extreme, to compare, say, Francisco Lindor to Paul Goldschmidt, even though I think Goldschmidt comes out on top because yeah. I'll take the bourbon. I'll take the bourbon and then I'll pay for the lawn mowing. I totally agree with you. And I think that that is, if there's first place votes, I can't imagine they'd be for Freeman. It's just, yeah, they're too similar of a position. But I think Freeman is a deserving you know, top of the MVP ballot finisher. And I have to say, I think it would be really tough to do the down ballot stuff in the NL MVP voting. 
the AO one kind of writes itself, Judge one, Otani two, and then I don't know, you, you know, go nuts after that, freelance a little. But I think the NL one will be very interesting to see the relative finishes of these guys. On one hand, who cares? It's what 30 sports writers think about something that doesn't matter that much. But on the other hand, it's neat. Like, it's not every day you see, let's see, we have nine hitters in baseball worth six fangrass or, or more already. That's a lot. And what, six of them are in the NL? That's kind of cool. You know, you know who I think should be in conversations for like third and four or fourth? Uh, you don't get a lot of, you haven't heard a lot of talk about him, but JT Realmuto. Yeah, he's I think. really picked it up. I don't think people have necessarily have noticed, and I'm surprised. I think at an earlier age, since it's kind of a a stat that's been kind of, you know, not quite as important as it used to be, is Realmuto is a catcher who has 17 stolen bases and not a single caught stealing. Yeah. He's having, you know, an, a great WRC plus season. He's already set his career high for Fangraphs War. I haven't checked Baseball Reference War, but he's having a pretty big season. And the thing is, when I go back to the bourbon versus lawn mowing thing, catchers are hard to evaluate, very hard to evaluate. There's probably more of a, a wiggle room for their war than in other positions. I'm, I'm a lot more confident about war when I'm talking about a first baseman than when I'm talking about a catcher. Yeah, I agree with that. And so the variance is high. I think the, the central tendency of how valuable he's been is lower. And so I would not vote for him first, but... He has been really good, and also he's been really, really, really good recently because he started off the season slow, and that's fun. It is. I I would be tempted to seriously look at, if I was a voter, an Arenado, Goldschmidt, Real Muto ballot, and a lot of people would hate me. Yeah, a lot of people would be like, wait, wait, who? <laughs> no, if they say who, I am totally retweeting that and being mad about it. Uh, so here's a, a fun stolen base by slow people fact. The last time Paul Goldschmidt was caught stealing a base was in 2019. He's uh, still a good base stealer, despite his uh, advancing age and declining speed. He has 18 yeah, I, bags in the last two years without being caught. That's impressive. I don't quite know how he does it. I'm just like kind of just reading the picture, I guess. But he remains a more complete player than you'd expect for a very large first baseman. I, I thought that David Ortiz had like a six or seven stolen base streak, but there was there was one in between. You know, in his uh, final four seasons, uh, David Ortiz had six uh, stolen bases against one caught stealing. Yeah, and that were those like defensive indifferences, backhand double steals. That's surprising to me. I mean, he was by he that had two point, in, He had two in his final season. That's so why he was much slower than uh, Goldschmidt is now. So that, that's impressive. He was probably Sean Casey slow at, at that point. Did you see the, the Pujols caught stealing earlier this year where he just took off from second? Pitcher looked over and was like, what are you doing? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I have to. We'll probably get this cut from the podcast, but I have to go check that out. It's definitely worth seeing. He took off from first or from second. I think he thought he had like read the pitcher's move and the pitcher had not entered the stretch yet. And so he just like looked over questioningly through the third Pujols out by like 15 feet. It was great. He has two caught stealings this year, which really shows more desire than anything else. He has one successful steal. I think it was the back end of a double steal. But he used to be a, a pretty decent base stealer as well. And now it's just, he could have Ricky Henderson's instincts, but he's got Albert Pujols' body. Sorry, buddy. It's always funny to look at and, and see some stolen base numbers from people. Like, people are surprised when I tell them that Adam Dunn once stole 19 stolen bases in a season. Right. Yeah, that's pretty shocking. John Crook has an 18 stolen base season. In his first go-round with the Cardinals, Pujols was an above-average base runner, which is really hard to imagine. Given, just, I don't know, like people have watched Albert Pujols play recently, and he looks quite slow. But he used to be—he uh, used to be pretty savvy on the bases, and in fact, he still is relative to his speed. But 
I don't know. You just, you just can't keep it up forever. Uh, on that note of not keeping up forever, I think we should probably wrap this segment up. We've uh, done a good job being the... I'd like to think of Lorela and AJ Hinch as the openers, and we're the bulk guys. We contribute the heavy innings. They do the uh, really impressive top-of-the-card stuff. And... Are you saying we're using Mero Pettit? Yeah, exactly. I like that. He's Mero Pettit, one of my favorite strange pitchers. He just uh, he switches which side of the mound he pitches from based on whether he's pitching to a lefty or a righty. And he just started doing it one year, and they asked him about it, and he said, I don't know, I decided to do it. You know I've been saying his name wrong. I For some reason, I've been saying Pettit instead of Petit. I always thought it was Petit. Is it not? It is Petit, but I've been saying Pettit for, even though I've probably heard it a million times. But again, this is probably off. Andy's brother. <laughs> That's how I've always known it. He just didn't want to spell it. I, this way, we don't have to know how many T's there are. Right. <laughs> we just, we just Far too many T's in your name. I'm cutting them all. Also not suitable for the podcast, but my favorite John Cruck fact that I was just thinking of when I brought him up is if you look at their listings for height and weight on uh, BaseballReference.com, uh, Ichiro, 5'11", 175. John Cruck, 5'10", 170. What? That's his baseball reference listed height weight. 5'10", 170. I don't know how often you watch Phillies games on the Phillies broadcast, but they do a fair amount of someone bringing up food to the booth and then Cruck eating it. And <laughs> well, he's, not fi- he's certainly not 5'10", 170 now. Right. It, it's consistently enjoyable. He like ranks his favorite foods and all that kind of stuff. It's good. I suggest it sometime. Uh, on that note, I'm going to go walk my dog. I'm very excited. I'm going to interview J.P. Fireisen about whether he knows that he's the Major League post-integration leader in innings pitched in a season with a zero ERA. Oh, I didn't know he was. I'm guessing he does not know. I mean, I didn't know who the previous record holder was. It happened in 2017, and it was some dude I've never heard of who I will now look up for you. When are you talking to him? There's, I hope there's not a chance that he'll ruin it in the meantime. Uh, he's out for the season. Oh, oh, that's right. I completely forgot. I mean, I wouldn't. I thought there was some chance he was coming back at the time that I started writing this because they hadn't officially declared him out. But now they have officially declared him out. And so the, the record is his. Okay, no, I, I, I did not see that he was not coming back at all. Sad. Yeah. The record is now his. The previous record holder, the immortal Tyler Olson. So I don't think this is a record that's going to get into Cooperstown or anything. But I think it's kind of neat. Yeah, neat things are neat. It's weird. When I hear the name Tyler Olson, I think of him as like a first baseman. You're right. Even though he's not. Be Matt. He has the name of a first baseman. It is definitely a first. Olsen is a first baseman's last name, I think, is yeah. what we're going for here. All right. For Dan Zimborski, I'm Ben Clemens signing off like this is a real baseball broadcast. Thanks for hanging out with us today. It was a blast, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Bye. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to AJ Hinch for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sending it to a friend or two. Tell them how much you enjoyed the segments. It helps us out. Don't forget to check out the Fangraphs app on your smartphone, free on the Apple Store or Google Play. It's the perfect way to have Fangraphs in your pocket wherever you go, so you can look up those baseball things you need to know when you're watching the game at the ballpark or at the bar. And of course, don't forget the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on everything we have going on, free to your inbox. We hope you have a good rest of your week, and we'll talk to you next time.